morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guest on Healthy Options is Florence Williams, the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. In this book, she aims to show us that being in nature actually makes us more human. She is currently a fellow at the Center for Humans in Nature and a visiting scholar at George Washington University, where her work focuses on the environment, health, and science. Florence Williams is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for, the wide, for a wide array of publications, including the New York Times, National Geographic, Slate, O, the Oprah Magazine, Mother Jones, High Country News, and The Atlantic. She's received numerous awards in journalism, along with other recognition. For instance, the Wall Street Journal calls her writing droll and crisp, which, as she says, makes her feel like pastry. Oh, my goodness. And a sense of humor she definitely has, and we'll hope to hear more of that as we proceed through the hour. <laughs> her first book is entitled Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, and we hope to have her back on Healthy Options in the near future to discuss that book as well. That would be great. And today on Healthy Options, Florence Williams is here with us by phone to talk with us about, again, her new book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Welcome to Healthy Options and WERU, Florence Williams. Thank you so much, Rhonda. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So in order to prepare for our interview, um, I read the book, and I was there's just so much in there, and it's so interesting. And I was trying to solidify and, and clarify in my own mind where we should start. And I found that I needed to go for a walk. <laughs> of course you did. That's right. And, and to just get clear and maybe to have something pop up is the first question, which is this. Um, why why do, do you think that was? <laughs> <laughs> I think you must have internalized the message that going for a walk gives you ideas. So I hope you got some ideas. Did, you, uh, did, did some questions pop into your head? I did. <laughs> I did. And I, I, think the, I think you'll be hearing some of them as, as we proceed. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I get a lot of my ideas walking, um, and it's not because I'm trying to have ideas. I'm just, um, you know, trying to enjoy my walk. Um, <laughs> and the research shows that if you walk in nature as opposed to walking in the city, um, you can more easily access, you know, this kind of desirable, um, low-stress state in which creativity can really flourish. So what do you mean uh, a low-stress state? What, what happens? I mean, you, you, you spent a lot of time in your book with a lot of electrodes on you, so... <laughs> So what have we learned? Electrodes and, and also various other ways to kind of quantify what was happening in my nervous system and in my brain as I walked in different environments, or in one case, paddled the kayak uh, on a lake. <laughs> and, um, well, when I wore the portable EEG units, and those are, those are units that actually measure your brain waves, um, I found that on, the, on that quiet lake where I was paddling, I was able to access alpha waves. My brain was putting out more alpha waves. And those are really prized by um, Buddhists and poets and surfers. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of this desirable brain, brainwave state in which you feel calm, but also alert. So it's kind of like you're in a state of flow. And it's actually not such an easy state to achieve, especially with your eyes open, apparently. But when you're out of nature and it's peaceful and it's quiet, you can get there. So that's, that's one example. But another thing that, you know, people have been measuring, including myself, is sort of what happens to your blood pressure, what happens um, to your cortisol levels, uh, what happens to um, even your immune cells. You know, all of these things seem to get better when we're in pleasant, outdoor, uh, natural environments. So you were talking, um, you, you've gone all over the world to, 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 know, to know this, and I was particularly intrigued about what's going on in Japan with the, uh, the forest walking. Yeah, I was fascinated by that as well. There's a practice in Japan called Shinrin-yoku, or forest bathing. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't really mean, like, taking off your clothes and running through the woods. Um, it's more just a way to access a really mindful state by engaging all of your senses when you're out in the forest. And so practitioners or forest rangers, you know, on some of these, they call them therapy trails, actually, in Japan, and there are dozens and dozens of them. Um, they help you um, just sort of click into your to your environment by focusing on the breath and then uh, focusing on what you're hearing, what kind of sounds you're hearing, 
um, the breeze on your face or the moss underfoot, um, what, uh, what you're smelling. They, they, so a lot of the forests in Japan have some wonderful evergreen trees um, called Hinoki cypress trees that are very kind of beloved by Japanese people. And, and so even, what, the, what the research shows is that even just after 15 minutes of this kind of forest bathing, you know, gentle strolling or, or just kind of hanging out in the woods, um, blood pressure drops a few points. Um, the heart rate variability changes in a way that kind of indicates a more um, parasympathetic nerve response, which is a more relaxed nervous response. Um, cortisol levels decline, and people also self-report feeling better. They, their moods improve, their, their sort of levels of frustration and anger go down, um, and they feel um, more vital. Would you say that, um, in, in, since we were bringing up brain waves, because we are talking about the brain, the brain, nervous system, smell, all of our senses going through the nervous system, would you say that those different waves, did you measure your theta waves or, or alpha waves in that situation as well? Was there a way to, to know if that was changing as well? Yeah, uh, I, I did. I, I um, worked with some um, neuroscientists and psychologists at various points. I think I wore those EEG caps um, on a couple of different environments. Um, actually, most recently, just a few weeks ago, <laughs> when I was on a wilderness river trip in Utah, and I have actually I haven't gotten the results from back from that yet, but um, apparently I was producing some alpha there. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean it's interesting because I I also tested my brain waves while walking through city parks. Right. So you know places that are pretty and green and naturey, but still in the city. And I actually did not produce alpha waves in that environment, and it, it may be because I am kind of particularly maybe sensitive to noise pollution. Um, it's one thing that does not make my brain feel very relaxed. So I know for me, I tend to need a bigger hit, you know, of, of a kind of more wilderness um, kind of nature. So there, that, that's something I was, uh, did want to talk about. You, you, you started your book with a, a lot of different ideas about, about um, theories, you know, what, what is it that happens in nature? And you're bringing up uh, this idea of noise pollution can change our, our, our experience of, of that. What, what else happens? Um, is it what we're, if we're breathing toxins? Won't that change things as well? How, how, what did you learn about that? Yeah, I learned that it's actually really complicated. <laughs> and, yeah. It tease out exactly, you know, which elements of the natural world are helping us feel better. And it, you know, it could be that part of it is that we are not in our normal urban, very busy, stressful lives, right? And, and part of that may be air pollution. So we know that air pollution does kind of make people feel crummier. Um, we know that, you know, noise pollution stresses people out, it actually can increase cardiovascular risk and stroke risk over time. Um, so how much of the benefits of nature are just because we're out of the city? And I think that that's a really valid question. Um, but, it, but it does look like there also are intrinsic values to nature, and we know this from a lot of studies. For example, um, if you play bird song, uh, you know, if you pipe it into a school, um, the students perform better on tests, like they feel more alert, for example. Um, we know that bird song can make people feel more relaxed. And we know that the color green and the color blue are sort of soothing um, colors that, that make us feel happy. Um, fractal patterns. I have actually a whole chapter on kind of vision and visual perception in the book. And, and, and in that chapter, I talk about fractal patterns, which are often found in nature, as opposed to kind of like the rigid geometry of urban life. What, so what, fractal what? patterns are like patterns that repeat at scale. Um, often found, you know, forests or clouds or coastlines, um, river waves, things like that. And, and they really put us in a state of relaxation. Is that why watching the surf is just so mesmerizing and, and, and so relaxing for many people? It, it may be partly that, yeah. It may be partly that. And I think there's also something about the soundscape of the ocean, too, uh, that can be very soothing. You know, there's the sound of the waves, the sound of birds. Um, the sound of the wind. Again, it's a landscape that that is, um, you know, on some level, our perceptual system find uh, it can resonate with, you know, because these are 
these are the kind of natural cues in the natural environments that our brains evolved in, right? So our, our, our eyes, our vision, our hearing really evolved to pick up nature sounds, you know, not urban sounds. Which, so you, you were describing how you live under, uh, you know, a, a, a plane, an airport. How's that working for you? <laughs> oh, God, it's just uh, visible. <laughs> I live pretty close to Reagan National Airport in Washington, D.C. Right. Yes, yeah, so I'm under the flight path, and, and it's a busy airport. So, you know, um, pretty much all hours of the day, except, except for, you know, the middle, middle of the night, there are planes taking off and landing almost every two minutes. And they're low, low-flying jets, so they're super loud. I mean, loud enough that if you're outside, you really have to cease conversation, you know, until they pass overhead. And you have to do that every two minutes. <laughs> I, well, well, I do remember, I grew up in New York as well, and you did too, that I was so used to city sounds that when I left New York, it was, or I went into nature, the, I remember my first camping trip, it was scary. I was, right. I was more freaked out in Bear Mountain State Park than I was on 231st Street in the Bronx, you know? Yep. So what, what, you know, what does that say about our nervous systems? What have we adapted to? Like, you're adapting, but even though you may not hear them anymore, your nervous system hears them, those plants. Yeah, that's right. You know, we may think we're adapting on some level to urban life. Um, and, in fact, we are pretty good at filtering out sound, you know, and stimuli, you know, if we need to focus on something. But it takes a big toll actually, the act of filtering out uh, is quite exhausting. And eventually it will make us kind of grumpy and, and tired and, and stressed as well. And uh, even when we're doing that on a subconscious level, our nervous systems are still kind of, you know, processing the sound on a level that's subconscious. So, for example, we know that um, when people are sleeping in a loud environment, for example, if they live near an airport, um, their nervous systems register the plane overhead. It registers the noise, and we know this because respiration increases, heart rate increases, blood pressure increases a little bit when those sounds come. And, you know, and that makes sense because for our survival as a species, you know, we had to be able to kind of process potentially dangerous, you know, especially loud, low, rumbling noises <laughs> right. like a predator. And airplanes, unfortunately, and trucks, you know, kind of trigger that response. And so we know that people who live in those environments um, have, are at higher risk for things like stroke um, and heart disease and hypertension, unfortunately. So in your case, you, there, you live in D.C. There are a lot of parks. There are a lot of places to walk. Does that, does that urban walk do it? Will that calm the nervous system? Will that get us into those different states? You mentioned it a little bit that you don't get into the alpha, but do other aspects still kick in if we're wherever we are in, in an urban environment or in a smaller city even? Um, how, how about the, the parks and, and green areas in, in, in towns and, and country? Well, I do think that the city parks and green areas are a total lifesaver. So, yes, I mean, even though I complain about the noise pollution, (laughs) (laughs) um, I have learned how to kind of cultivate, you know, a more um, nature-based sensibility, even living in a city. And I'm out there almost every day. You know, I feel like I just couldn't be sane. Uh, I couldn't maintain a sort of good, productive, um, happy mood if I didn't have it. So, for me, I've had to learn how to... Um, you know, how to, how to enjoy and access nature in a city. And so for me, it means doing things like, um, you know, not multitasking when I'm out for a walk, but taking some of the lessons from Japan, you know, of really trying to be mindful in these spaces. So, for example, I'll take out my earbuds. Um, I'll really try to listen for the birds uh, in between the airplanes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will, um, you know, make an effort to sort of look for wildlife and to, um, you know, pay attention to to what kinds of buds or leaves are happening on the trees. You know, even though I walk in almost the same place every day, it's always different. And, and part of that is because I'm noticing, you know, what's happening with the season, what's happening with the plants, what's happening with the animals. And it really does, it really helps me enormously. Now, I was reading an article uh, recently, can't remember exactly where, but it was talking about people walking with their cell phones and people walking without their cell phones, and that there were differences, 
and I might have had to do with students too, that there are little that there are differences in how people experience nature or how they even perform in in tests or learning situations. That even having the phone there changed the the whole nervous system and changed how someone would focus. So what you're saying is to kind of to totally unplug is what you're saying. Don't have a conversation with your best friend while you're walking by the water or, you know. Well, I, I guess I would say it depends what you want to get out of it, right? So if you really need to have a conversation with your best friend, uh-huh. you know, do you want to do that, you know, inside your, your a room with four walls or do you want to do it outside? And, and maybe it's fine to have that call outside. Right. But if, you're, if your goal is really stress reduction, um, then the, the sort of best shortcut to get there is, is really to put the phone down. And I, and I do know this study that you're referencing. Um, it's an interesting study out of Utah. That's right. And um, that was by uh, Professor David Strayer, who's a cognitive neuroscientist. And he sent some students out to walk through an arboretum uh, while talking on the phone uh, and some other students not to bring their phones. And then he, he for one thing he did was he tested their, their memory of, you know, the items in the arboretum, features of the arboretum. And the people on the phone basically performed as poorly on that test as people who didn't take the walk at all. So being on the phone, multitasking, basically caused this kind of, um, you know, attentional blindness where they were, like, really unable to see their environment at all, which is kind of a shame. <laughs> and, then, um, and then, yeah, they also, they, their brains didn't really calm down in their kind of frontal cortex. He actually imaged their brains before and after and it was only in the, the people who were walking without the phone that experienced this sort of more meditative and, and relaxed state um, in their frontal cortex, which is, you know, the part of our brains that are kind of always thinking and overthinking and, you know, checking off boxes on our to-do list. That, that's really why we feel restored in nature, it seems to be, because that part of our brain can kind of chill out, you know, when we're outside. Ah, yes, the, the hikes without cell phones. <laughs> Watch people... Uh start perspiring and go into uh, withdrawal, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very hard for some people to put that phone down. Yeah. Now, you were, I, I must have read it in your book. I can't believe I, uh, I didn't remember that. But there was so much in there. Florence, it's, it's such a great book full of, uh, of, of all of these gems of, of ideas of how to be in nature. So you went with a number of neuroscientists on this trip, one of the trips to, to Utah, and there were some people who were, who were really having a hard time, the, I don't know, unplugging, weren't, weren't there on that. They were neuroscientists, I believe. Yeah, they were neuroscientists. Yeah, sure. You know, like everyone, I mean, um, we're all attached to our email and our phones and, and, you know, can't imagine living without them. And I'd be the last person to tell you to throw your phone, you know, into a waterfall. But I think what we all need to figure out how to do is just, um, you know, have a sort of more balanced kind of media diet, you know, almost like a food diet. And we can't just be on junk food all the time. <laughs> you know, it's just not good for our bodies. And the same thing's true with technology. I think we need to know when to turn it off, when to unplug, and, and when to find the antidote, you know, to that plugged-in life. And, and boy, nature is really a great antidote for that, which I think is one of the reasons we're seeing, finally, so many parents, um, so many schools, a lot of activists are really talking about how can we get these kids, you know, away from these devices and out into nature a little bit more. So speaking of schools, you have an entire chapter again on, on some kids who are labeled ADHD, that whole attention deficit situation, which is they may be the canaries, but really should, should anybody be sitting at a desk and, and taking in learning in that way? Shouldn't there be a component for everybody, where you're outside, you know, recess, I remember reading, is really the most important lesson of the day. <laughs> I would certainly love to see more recess, um, more nature exposure, more nature education built in to even conventional classrooms. Um, it, you know, in Finland, Finland routinely has some of the highest test scores on the planet. And, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that people posit for this, like, oh, it's because the teachers are so qualified or it's because, you know, the students are so homogeneous and middle class or, you know, whatever. And um, but what, what they tend not to talk about, but what the teachers will tell you, is that it's because these kids have 15 minutes of recess for every 45 minutes of instruction. So they get like five recesses a day, 
you know, I mean, it's kind of astounding. And I said to one of the teachers, well, that's a lot of time, you know, away from the classroom. And she said, well, of course we do this, because if we didn't, the kids can't sit still and they can't pay attention. I thought, wow, that's really an undervalued element of the fitness classroom. Some idea that somehow the magic number of hours in a classroom is what learning is, not the amount of, or the learning that takes place, that, that we're yeah. too much focused on that, that false number, in a way. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, kids really learn, especially little kids, they learn by exploring their environment. You know, and that's, that's really why kindergarten was even invented, um, right. you know, by Froebel in, in you know, the ni- 19th century mid-19th century, it's really, it was really because there was this recognition that kids learned from the natural world. They learned from um, cultivating plants. Um, and they learned from running around outside and using all of their muscle groups, you know, and, and, and playing with tools from the natural world. Uh, and, and unfortunately, we, we've moved so far away from that in kindergartens of today that are really just kind of a, a younger extension of first grade. Hmm. Just taking that in for a moment. <laughs> you know, going outside with, you, you differentiate. We've, we've talked about the city. We've talked a little bit about some, uh, you know, parks and, and those kinds of situations. But you also spend a lot of time talking about the backcountry. Going, what, what happens that's different if you're on a camping trip? Well, that's a great question. Uh, it seems to be that when you're out for a several days at a time, really profound things start to shift in your brain. And part of that has to do with sort of perspective. Um, part of it has to do with creativity. Um, it seems that, uh, you know, and many cultures have understood this, of course, from, for, for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, that, that rites of passage can often happen in the wilderness because that's a place and a time and a space where we can really think about who we are and kind of how we belong in our communities. Um, what are our dreams? What are our long-term goals? Who do we want to be? Um, these really sort of more profound questions, spiritual questions, um, can more readily just take place, I think, when we're out of our normal kind of conditions of existence um, and when we're in a place that's more elemental uh, and when we're living just closer to the land and more simply. So unfortunately, I think so many people don't have the privilege of experiencing that. You know, people who go to wilderness areas, go to national parks, you still tend to see um, a lot of economic, you know, kind of um, privilege in the populations who are able to do that. And I, I think it's a great tragedy. I actually think exposure to wilderness and, and nature, you know, is a, is a great social justice issue um, that we're going to have to take on if we really care about um, people's well-being across all walks of life. Making things more accessible make, and, 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 and such. And you... um. I just I loved the experiences that you had in 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 these in in Finland. You went you went to Finland and and saw that nature is just everywhere, and people just go out into nature all the time, and that that's just a part of life. It wouldn't ever be thought of not to be out outside. That's right. That's right. I think, you know, Finland tends to be just an unusually nature-connected country. And, and what people told me is it's really because um, Finland industrialized much later, you know, than a lot of Europe um, or the United States. People were still farming, still living on the farm, you know, just a generation ago, which is not really the case here. Um, and so in, in Finland, like your parents or your grandparents still have these kind of country houses that are very um, modest. They're almost like country shacks. But... Um, they're located on the coast or they're located in forests. And so, like, a huge number, I think it's four out of five Finns, actually goes to one of these kind of country shacks, you know, all the time, almost every weekend. And they still do a lot of um, berry picking and mushroom hunting, <laughs> um, butterfly chasing. You know, it's, it's, they, they cross-country ski in the woods. They hike. They're still a very, it's a very nature-connected place, which is so interesting. It kind of sounds like Maine. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it does sound like Maine. We do have a lot of people who say, "Well, we're going out to the to the to the camp, and the camp is uh, you know totally off the grid, and it's this little shack that my grandparents had, and you know we're just going to spend the weekend there, and it's great." Yeah. I think Maine is similar too in that it's so forested. Yes. So you're so fortunate to have that. 
We are. And um, what I'm looking, noticing, too, is that, that a lot of the places you went, they're starting to talk to each other. So the people in Finland are bringing in the researchers from the Shinrin-yoko. And so the Japanese are coming to Finland, and then, you know, people are, are, are cross-pollinating this idea of, uh, of what it is to relax. Yeah, I love that. There seems to be almost this growing industry now, kind of globally, of people who are studying environmental psychology, um, studying neuroscience of nature. Um, there, you're seeing a lot more conferences, a lot more journal articles, um, a, a lot of kind of edited academic books. It's really taken off, I think, as we have grown into a more urbanized, more technologically-based society. Um, I think a lot of people are left with a lot of questions about what is it that we are missing? What are we losing in this transition to cities? And how do we either optimize our cities to get some of that back or... You know, how do we learn to be better users of technology? And how do we make our kids more connected to nature so that they'll have that their whole lives, even as they move through, you know, different urban areas and different technologies? Hold that thought for a moment, because (laughs) I want to tell people who've just tuned in that you are tuned to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we are speaking with Florence Williams. She is uh, the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. So we, yes, the research about, about our nervous system and, our, and how nature affects, affects that on, on every level. At the beginning of your, of your book, you are talking about these different ideas. There are different theories about this. And what would you say one is dealing with uh, attention restoration, that we're calming our, we're, we're just allowing there's relaxation in the prefrontal co- cortex, our thinking brain. And then there, there's another biophilia idea that, what, what is that, that we're really just calming our nervous system? Maybe you can explain how, how the researchers are looking at these things. Sure. Um, yeah, everyone seems to have kind of a different pet. Theory <laughs> right, the about pet theory. elements of nature, you know, is really helping us out. Um, but the biophilic, biophilia hypothesis is sort of overarches a lot of them, and it, it's really an idea popularized by Harvard biologist Ed Wilson, E.O. Wilson, and um, it basically just states that you know we evolved in nature and we have a natural affinity as humans. We have a natural affinity for other living things, living plants living creatures, um, you know, this is um, how our brains evolve, where we feel comfortable on some level. Um, and because of that natural affinity, um, you know, the, our nervous systems just kind of like, you know, being in natural environments. But E.O. Wilson states, and other people have said this too, that, that just because it's kind of an inherent trait doesn't mean that um, it's always there. For example, we can lose it. We can lose this innate, um, this innate affinity if we don't cultivate it. And so I think that's what, what we're seeing, <laughs> yes. unfortunately, you know, increasingly in modern life is that so many people just don't have that natural connection to nature. And because of that, they don't really care about it and they don't care about the environment. And uh, as a result, you know, we're doing a lot of destruction to our planet. And yes, and then, then there's the, the other theory is that we're just relaxing parts of our thinking, our executive function or something along those lines? Or? Yeah, there's, there's another theory called the stress reduction theory. And that one says, yeah, it's really because we go out into nature and our nervous systems calm down because, you know, we're in a quieter, more pleasant environment, um, that that's why the good feelings happen. The stress reduction comes first. Stress reduction. And maybe both are happening. And maybe something we don't even know yet. Who knows? Yeah, yes. totally. <laughs> I mean, it's all kind of the same thing, you know, on some level. Um, that, that we're... Um, kind of um, happy when we're outside. It seems to happen naturally. So you uh, again in all of these places there there so in in Korea and in Japan there's there's the the cypress there's the sense of smell then there's the idea of sight and then there's the idea of sound and you were putting somehow putting this all together and I just love that in in these studies or how you found these great little pockets of, of nature research all over the, over the world. <laughs> they're, they're putting this all, all together. And what got me, some of the ideas of smell 
in nature. I know that the on the Japanese studies and the Korean studies, they were talking. What do they talk at the uh, Phytocides uh, or phytoncides. Thank you. I'm going to get this right. <laughs> and the geosimmons. What? Yeah. yeah. And the, this idea that these things are in the are in the soil and that they're antibiotic, and yet we we get to take them in. Tell us more about those experiences that you had with those. Yeah, I love. I mean, the Japanese are so focused on the on the sense of smell. They are they're they're very fixated on their you know wonderful um, evergreen trees, these cypress trees. And some of the studies show that uh, these trees, well, a lot of trees, you know, release aerosols um, that are sort of sometimes natural pesticides, for example. Um, and so they help the immune system of the tree. And it also looks like they may be helping the immune system of people. Yeah. Because um, well, what they're seeing in some studies, and these are from like Petri dishes where you put human cells in a Petri dish, and then you, you know, you sort of waft these chemicals even over the Petri dish, or you waft these, um, these, um, phytoncides into like a hotel room, for example, you mist essential tree oils into a hotel room where subjects are sleeping, and then you have other hotel rooms where subjects are not misted with the, <laughs> with the essential oils, and you see that um, their immune cells, these killer T immune cells, increase in the people who are sleeping with the essential oils, or in the Petri dish with the essential oils, but not in the other rooms. Uh, and so, so one researcher I talked to in Japan said, yeah, you know, I really think that, that people should go out into these woods, you know, about every three weeks because that's how long the elevated immune cells last for. And, if you, you know, if you can go out more often than that, it's even better. But, um, you know, for your, for your immune system, it seems to be, you know, helpful. And, and these immune cells, these fight cancer, I mean, they're not insignificant with the things that they're kind of, um, you know, classed with doing. Yeah, and 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 there you were. I loved you, your description that like you could see the mist. Could you not? <laughs> yeah, you can. You can see the mist. Yeah, it's really beautiful. These forests are really beautiful. Interestingly, a lot of them are not old growth. You know, we have some wonderful old growth forests here in the United States. In Japan, a lot of it's been cut over. Um, and, well, here too, of course. Um, but um, these, these trees are still, you know, they're they're pretty tall and they're bioactive, right? So they are still releasing these substances. That seem to be helpful not only to them but to the humans who walk through them. So we just have to go outside. That's really my yes. motto. Is, is uh, I have a very simple motto: is go outside, go often, bring friends or not, and breathe. Yes, breathe a lot. Yeah, <laughs> breathe, breathe, breathe those phytons. <laughs> yes, and yes, well, we'll come back to that too because there's uh, there's a lot of, of of things we can breathe. You know, um, we're fortunate, and we're we are right now here at WERU in uh, Blue Hill. I mean, in uh, Orland, Maine, near Blue Hill, we are near the ocean. We're near the water. And mm, so, so lucky, beautiful, yeah. And and so there's um, and, and in Belfast, uh, where where I live, we get to to take walks by the water, go swimming in in, in the summer uh, there quite quite often. And there's a a lot of people who wouldn't who would spend all their time there if if they could. And it is just part of being. In, in Maine, and we don't have to, uh, you know, for some of us, we don't have to, you know, drive a lot of hours, which is just a real blessing. Mm-hmm. It is such a blessing. And I, but I think it's important to point out, too, that not everyone is going to feel the same benefits from looking at the ocean right. you know, or being in a deep forest. You know, people often ask me, well, you know, what's the best element of nature? And, and I, I, you know, researchers, A, they don't really know, but, but B, there seems to be this understanding that there's, there is just a lot of individual variability, right? So you may like the ocean, but I may not. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. And, and so my point in the book is that people just need to know themselves, know which parts of nature or what types of nature respond, you know, most kind of, you know, beautifully to their own souls, and, um, and then act upon that, you know? to pay attention to how you feel in different environments. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things I've learned, too, is that, that we tend not to pay attention. <laughs> you know, we, we sort of charge through these spaces, you know, on our phones or whatever, and we're not necessarily tuned in to how they're making us feel. So that's why some of these measurements, you know, in these brain imaging machines, <laughs> you know, can kind of help us remember, oh, yeah, it actually does make us feel good to be out here. 
But you can also go to the other extreme. I think some of the researchers you were talking to were in a, in a little room putting a lot of electrodes on people and really trying to quantify exactly what it, 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 oh, they had screens, right? They were, they were the, uh, you, that didn't go so well for you, if I remember. The, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, the virtual reality experiences. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of virtual reality. I, I just think the technology isn't quite there yet. Well, I get um, nauseous, and, my, and I've done it a few times. and it's, Oh, so you're like me. That, yeah. I, yeah. I, they, they did something at a, at a, I think it was the uh, Camden Film Festival. They had these films, and I was in a lobster pot. <laughs> and I, I really was thought I was the lobster. Yeah, that and sounds like hell. Actually. It was really horrible. Yeah. And I had to take it off. And, and the guy doing it, he, he, he said, oh, my God, I, I was, must have been green. And he kept handing me bottles of water, which I thought were standard. No, they were his bottles of water. He just said, oh, my God, Rhonda, you better take these. <laughs> you oh, need something now. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Uh, yeah, I, there's a lag time between what you're seeing and what you're kind of feeling. <laughs> it's just an imperfect technology right now. Um, and I just, I feel like I'm wearing a machine or looking at a screen. Hmm. Um, you know, I can hear the mechanical sounds. You know, I, for me, it's definitely not a replacement for nature where you have all, all of your senses engaged. In virtual reality, you really just have one or two. So it's just not quite there yet. So if you don't have a window and someone's going to tell you, you can have a, you can have a, a film of uh, whatever you're, you know, your desert scene, your ocean scene, your forest scene, whatever it is that makes you comfortable. We're, we're still at the point where we would say, mm, that may not really do it, huh? Well, I mean, interestingly... Or would it? It does. It does help. It's all, so all of these technologies and, and uh, I think, levels of immersion, you know, they, they sit on a spectrum. And there actually, there are some very well-proven benefits of looking at photographs of natural scenes looking at videos of nature scenes. For example, there have been studies in prisons um, where prisoners are, you know, can see, you know, nature videos. And, in fact, it, it does help them calm down, and, and there are fewer incidences of violence and so on on those, on those wards. Um, looking out of view of a window is even better, and actually being outside is even better than that. So, so there are some benefits even to sitting in a room with some plants. <laughs> yes. But the more you can actually be outside, it seems like the better. Oh, always. <laughs> so you have this lovely picture of this woman in her beautiful twig hat from Finland. Yeah. Did you get one? A twig hat? Yeah, come on. Sadly, no. I did not Sadly. wear a twig hat. Maybe it's in my future. I'm going to have to go back to Finland. You did not have the full, the full immersion experience that... Yeah, right. clearly I, I need to go back and wear some more twigs. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you talk about fractals a little bit more in the, the site? I'm, I'm not quite understanding what, what those are. Is that, is that just the meaning that it's not just square shapes, you know, because not the straight lines that we often see in urban areas or in our world? What? Uh, no, actually, there is a more specific definition. Um, so fractal pattern is a pattern that repeats at scale. So, um, for example, when you're looking at a tree, um, the leaves may have a certain angle, you know, of lines in them that is um, parallel to or, you know, reflected in the leaves of the, of the small branches hitting the larger branches. And, and those angles and patterns are repeated in those, those branches um, against the tree trunk, for example. So, th so you're seeing, like, similar patterns repeating at different scales. And there's something about looking at those patterns, which are often, by the way, found in nature, um, that seems to produce, for example, alpha waves in our brain. And alpha waves are those brain waves that are, you know, as I said, associated with kind of calm, happy, um, alert states. So um, you don't see fractal patterns everywhere, but, but they are found in clouds and coastlines and, and, and things like that. And, um, what, you know, one physicist I talked to said, yeah, it's the fractal pattern. That's why you're happy. <laughs> okay. That's so it could be. That could be it, it, it could be, <laughs> because your brain is getting what different, different, different ideas of shapes, different ideas of light, the light going through the shapes, and yeah, it's getting into some happy kind of hypnotic pattern um, because it is resonating with our visual perceptual system. Our eyes really evolved to take in these kinds of shapes found in nature, uh, as opposed to like you know the more Euclidean kind of gray 
you know, straight lines of a city. And our, so because our brains are sort of comfortable processing this information and our brains know how to process this information, uh, our brains feel comfortable. That's the theory. So we know, just thinking about this, that, that there's a lot more nearsightedness in, yeah, in our culture. Yeah, a lot more nearsightedness in modern life and modern cities. Um, and, and people used to believe that was because um, they, you know, like, for example, there's very, very high rates of nearsightedness and myopia in Eastern Asia. Um, that it's because there was so much close work, like so much reading or so much computer work. Um, but now researchers actually think it's because of a lack of vitamin D. Vitamin D? Yeah, which we get from being outside in the sun. And our, our retina, so our eyes and the shape of our eyes, um, needs vitamin D in order to develop property, properly and sort of elongate in the proper way. And when you have all these like generations of children never going outside or rarely going outside, they're just not getting enough vitamin D in their retinas. And so they're developing this nearsightedness. And also, it's, wouldn't you say that it's the long vision as well, you know, looking in long distances? Or or is that the old, or is that old thinking? Now that well, so I haven't seen recent studies looking at that. I've just seen the ones looking at myopia. Um, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense that if we never see a horizon. Yes. You know, maybe, maybe that's also another um, skill that we are kind of losing as we move into cities and move inside. Because even if you're outside playing, if you're a kid, you are... You are. You will be looking at a long, a long distance. You'll be throwing the ball or whatever it is you're doing to the kids on the other side of the playground. You know, you are going short, going from uh, you know looking close to looking distance, uh, just right. naturally. Yeah, there are a lot of studies too that show that when kids play outside, all kinds of other good things happen. Uh, for example, girls get more. Uh, they get more. Uh, exercise. They run around more if they're outside in a natural space than if they're in a really urban schoolyard, for example. Uh, And we don't tend to think of nature as kind of a gendered space. Hmm. But, um, you know, it's it's interesting to think that there may be some increased benefits, especially for girls, in being in nature, which I think is fascinating and not something that I think people have paid a lot of attention to. That's that is that's it that, that because well now there's a lot more opportunity for sports and such but there was a time when that wasn't the case. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. And I guess you know just um, there's just something about that exploratory play, you know, that you get out of nature, that really um, just kind of subtly you know encourages you to you know walk around more, mm-hmm. climb trees, you know, throw things, jump in puddles. <laughs> and I, I visited some of these kindergartens that are outdoor kindergartens or outdoor classrooms. And, um, you know, it's amazing how, how physical it is. I mean, the kids are, like, moving all the time, which, you know, is really what kids are supposed to be doing. And, and when we pen them up in these, you know, school rooms with four walls and we give them a pencil and put them in a chair and tell them exactly what to do with that pencil, um, you have to wonder, you know, what kinds of neurons we are not creating, right, by, by locking them up in these places. Oh God, I'm. I, this is very uncomfortable. I'm really. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting. No, it's good. No, it's, it it's good. I'm, outside, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, really? I, I'm, we're going to have to stop. And no, no, we're not ready. But <laughs> I just want to. I'm. We definitely will take a walk after this. The, the whole. The whole station. I think. Um, I do want to tell people who've just tuned in that this is Healthy Options, and you're listening to WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and today we're speaking with Florence Williams here on Healthy Options, and we're talking about her newest book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. So yes, getting outside every day seems like the thing that we have to do. Now, if you have trees outside your window is that is that okay is that good enough oh it's great okay if you trees outside your window it's very helpful and in fact there have been studies showing that schools with the green space outside their windows um the students in those schools tend to perform better on tests they tend to recover more quickly from stress um so yeah absolutely if you have if you have trees that's great put your desk you know, in front of your window, look up, <laughs> look up from your phone, look up from your computer, look at the trees. Look outside. Um, yeah, it's absolutely terrific. But, um, you know, even better is if you can actually go outside and be among them and 
feel those trees through all of your senses. Yes, take a good breath. Don't forget to breathe. Take a good breath. Feel the leaves. I, I, when I walk, I, um, I'm kind of a crazy person, according to my neighbors. I mean, I'm sure I look that way because I'm always, like, grabbing clumps of vegetation and sort of crumbling them up and smelling them. <laughs> Excellent. I think sometimes trees smell great, and we are happy when we can smell them. Well, of course, you know, you used to live in the uh, in the Southwest, and I did too, in in New Mexico, and we'd have the uh, the wonderful uh, the the pines that smell of uh, of vanilla. You have to get oh yeah, the ponderosas. That's right, the ponderosas. You just Those have to are get my your favorite of all time. Have to get your face right in there all the time. Awesome. And I also I love the um you know the, all the sage out west. Yep. Uh, and the juniper berries. I mean, there are just so many incredible smells of that bring me back to my childhood. <laughs> I mean, I just love it, yeah. Is that, did you spend time there as as a child? It, during the summers I did, yeah. I used to go out west. And then I, I lived out west for two decades. So even as a, just as an adult, um, you know, I'm still very nostalgic for all that time in the mountains out west. The, and I try to get back whenever I can. And when I do, I, I stick my nose right in those ponderosa pines. No question. <laughs> that vanilla smell. I, when when I, lived, I lived in... Um, on a national forest when I lived in, in New Mexico. Wow. And, and so I think other people can relate to this. And I always felt like I was going into another, it, like it wasn't the same earth. When I got off a plane from New York or something, I would get out into the wilderness there in the backyard. And the way the desert is, it's, it's just looks like a, it's a different landscape. It's hard to imagine that I'm on the same you know, continent as as an urban city. There's something about the rocks and the red, the soil. And I think that there is a sense of place that you're talking about. Then I think every all of our listeners can relate to it too, wherever they grew up or here in Maine, that there is a sense of this is home or this is where my neurons or my my body feels feels relaxed. That they and they're and familiar. That wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that even though we grew up in New York, that we can still find that there is a place maybe in New York or in these other parts that become physiologically home? Yeah, absolutely. And I think even for New Yorkers and, and really inner city dwellers, you know, sometimes it's the sky, it's the sunset or it's the moon, uh, you know, that can provide that, that sense of connection and that sense of home. Of course, it's difficult to actually see stars, you know, from cities. And uh, a shocking number of children these days have never seen the Milky Way, uh, which I think is a great tragedy. Um, and another reason why we need to really, I think, work harder to, to get more kids out out into wild spaces. There's um, there's some uh, ideas about the medical aspect of, of nature as well. I know you were describing your, your dad and, and getting him, a, he was ill, and getting a, a, a nice room that actually looked out onto a nature scene. And you talked about going to Shanghai, I believe. Or was it Singapore? Singapore. Singapore. And talking about the hospitals there. Tell us a little bit about how that works on that, on that recovery from illness level. Sure. I mean, there's been a really, um, a couple of very seminal studies showing that uh, when there are views of nature or when patients can have exposure to nature, they recover more quickly. Um, they request less pain medications, uh, and they report sort of better, more positive attitudes about their treatment. And so hospitals, I think, are, are finally starting to take this to heart. I mean, of course, we understood it 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Florence Nightingale wrote about the importance of natural sunlight and windows for her patients. But then we forgot it, <laughs> and now we're starting to pick it up again. And so you see some of these hospitals, like in places like Singapore, um, where there are actually gardens on the roof, and there are all sorts of meditative gardens um, throughout the courtyards. The windows open up. You know, these are sort of radical ideas for, for some hospitals these days, um, and, I, and I think that there are tremendous benefits. So, yeah, yeah I mean, even in my own family, I, I wrote about my father. In the book, I wrote about my father being hit by a car, mm. suffered a traumatic brain injury, and he was in the hospital for a couple of months trying to recover, which I'm happy to say he, he finally did. But, um, you know, I took him outside to these gardens whenever I could. I made sure he had a room with a bed by a window. Um, I was researching the book at the time. And I think that these things really helped 
helped you know what to do or how to advocate for him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, and, and as I say, I think, I think, you know, some hospitals are really starting to understand this. In fact, there are other studies showing that, that when doctors and nurses can take breaks in these gardens in the hospitals, they go back to work feeling more refreshed feeling less stressed, and then they actually make fewer mistakes. So we know that, you know, staff mistakes, hospital staff mistakes are actually a pretty large cause of fatalities. No and, question. Uh, morbidities. And um, so it's important for the staff to feel less stressed as well as the patients. Sure. You can be more clear and, and, and calmer, and you can see what's going on right in front of you and a little bit more clearly. That's, that's really important. Yeah, I mean, these are high-stress jobs. So I think there are lessons there for all of us who have high-stress jobs, you know, that, that we need to figure out ways to really uh, recuperate. So there's, um, so what did, you know, the, some of the, the things that you were talking about in, in, uh, in Singapore where there was nature and trees everywhere, that this was, the some it was from the government there was a government idea of if you build something you have to replace the nature that you displaced <laughs> that's yeah, is yeah. That, that's right well you know singapore isn't exactly a democracy no it so, is not that's um, what, it has a kind of i guess um enlightened sort of dictatorship and and yeah i mean lee kuan yu who is the you know the head of singapore for many decades happened to like trees and so he said okay let's Let's plant a million trees. Let's make Singapore um, a, a garden in a city. Uh, and it works. I mean, he, there are trees everywhere. That's my, that's my nature dog barking. In the Excellent. Background. Time for a um, walk. I know. Pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's ready to go outside. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, Singapore now, as a result, has these policies, public policies. And, and one of them is what you said, which is that if someone wants to build an office building or a, a hotel, um, they actually have to more than replace the green space that they take up. So they do this by having gardens on the roof, having gardens on the walls. <laughs> a lot of these buildings have living walls made up of grasses and mosses and mm-hmm. butterflies flying around on the outside of the building. Um, there are many garden spaces inside the buildings, like courtyards inside, mm. uh, and, and the office workers um, love them. You know, they conduct their meetings in these spaces, uh, and it makes the city, I think, just, um, you know, beautiful and people desirable for, you know, companies and, and people to want to relocate there. But just don't chew gum outside. <laughs> right, no. don't chew gum. You have to behave yourself in Singapore. It's a little scary. Okay. But very green. That's good. Okay. Very green. Very green. Exactly. So you also, and I first heard about your book and, and you through uh, High Country News, which is a wonderful magazine from uh, wonderful. out west. And the, um, and you went on a, a, a rafting trip with women who were veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan. How, and tell us a little bit about how you felt that, that, those na- that nature was uh, working to heal post-traumatic stress and, and, and that kind of situation. Yeah, I really I had the wonderful privilege of uh, spending time in the wilderness with a group of women veterans suffering from PTSD. And um, this was a six-day trip. Uh, on the Salmon River in Idaho, which is um, really part of the largest wilderness area in the lower 48. And on this trip, I really watched this incredible transformation in these women. You know, when you have PTSD, uh, you kind of want to shut shut yourself away from it, it, it stimuli. You know, you're sort of hypervigilant and you're anxious. And um, it's, it's easier to sometimes to stay home. Right, rather than sort of deal with these spaces that are kind of overstimulating to your kind of overamped uh, and, and stressed out nervous system. But what happens when you're out in nature is that you really want to open up your senses. And that's partly because, you know, you see these beautiful um, features in the landscape. You may see a bald eagle flying overhead. Uh, there's, you're in a, the middle of a rapid and there's a rock coming up that you have to pay attention to what's in front of you. And you're, so you're really drawn out of yourself. And what happens is, you, you know, your, your body starts to wake up, your brain-body connection starts to kind of um, reconnect, which is a beautiful thing to watch. And then, of course, there's all the social, kind of fun, social, low-pressure time together with other people. Um, it's also very healing. We know it's a very 
beneficial for people's well-being. Uh, and, and I really just watched these women kind of, um, you know, they said they were sleeping better, they were eating better, they were, became more joyful, and they really became motivated to continue to do some outdoor sports and activities, you know, once they got home, which is really cool because it means that it, it wasn't just a week-long transformation but something that they can take with them forever. So, so really, that was activating all of the senses that we've been talking about. You know, you have the smell, you have the sight, you have the sound, you have community. It's really what Absolutely. all of this research has uh, has really been uh, talking about in 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 the whole book and what you've gotten you've got to experience firsthand, which is very exciting. Absolutely, That's really great. Now, you also talked about just just to end this that there were some people who don't resonate. In, in nature. The, there are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, there are about 10 or 15% of people who, who just hate nature, <laughs> or they say they hate nature. They say they'll never really calm down in nature because they're too anxious. You know, they're worried about the bugs or about the weather. Um, but I, I have some friends who fall into this category, and when I talk to them, they'll say, oh, yeah, I hate nature, but then they'll also tell me that they love gardening or that they love going to the beach. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's nature too. You know, I think we tend to have this kind of pristine definition of nature, and I think we need to loosen that up a little bit. And once you do that, you realize that actually most people really do have something that's part of the natural world that they do, in fact, connect to and value. So with that said, and, uh, you know, when, especially in Maine and other places, uh, we do have things like Lyme disease and we do have ticks. And it, it, for a lot of people recently, because of that, there are people who often went out hiking who are saying, oh, I don't want to go anymore or I'm afraid to go. And one of the things that we t- I talk about a lot I'm, uh, when I'm treating people or uh, talking about Lyme disease or those kinds of things is if you are wearing the right clothing, if you're protected, you know, you protect yourself a little bit. It does take a little more effort, but it's still fine. You can still get out there. You know, you can still yeah. do it. Um, but it, unfortunately, the reality of the situation is that you do have to do a little bit more than you might have a number of years ago. You, I used to drive yeah. by, a, uh, see a trail and just jump out of the car and walk can't do that anymore. Oh, I don't have my right spray. I don't have the right, you know, insect shield clothing on or something. Not, I I don't get any money from the insect shield for saying that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, my permethrin uh, impregnated clothing, you know, but, but if you are taking protections and, and, and precautions, you can still go out there and have a good time. That's... Yeah, absolutely. And I I can relate to those fears too. Um, You know, Lyme disease is terrible. But I, I think it's also worth noting that if we stay inside, you know, there are a lot of health risks associated with that. There so you go. We know that inactivity, uh, loneliness, isolation, um, you know, not having the sunlight, not having the fresh air, these are all really, really big causes of chronic diseases, including anxiety, depression. Uh, and, and so... Uh, we need to we need to not just do that. Also, <laughs> that's right. So on that happy note, um, on that happy note, go outside. No, <laughs> no, that's it. That's right. So as you say, you can say it again, right? Okay, my motto. Here we go. Go outside. Go often. Bring friends or not, and breathe. Right, and sometimes in wild places too. Right, and sometimes in wild places when you can, and because you live in Maine, you are so lucky. So enjoy it. Well, we will. And uh, for those people who uh, aren't living in Maine who are listening, well, you know, we're very close. We're just a plane <laughs> right away. Well, I, we've run out of time, and we could just keep going on, I know. Um, but I want to uh, thank uh, thank you, Florence Williams, uh, for being on Healthy Options. As I said, our guest tonight, uh, today on Healthy Options, has been Florence Williams, the author of The Nature Fix, why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Her website is florencewilliams.com, where you could spend hours reading her articles, hearing and watching other talks and interviews, and listening to her new audio series called Breasts Unbound. 
Okay. But don't forget to go outside. I think that's the, uh, the motto for this show. And thank you so much, Florence Williams, again, for being on Healthy Options today. If you've missed any part of this program or would like to share it, please go to our online streaming of recent programs at weru.org. And after that, you can look for it uh, on the Public Affairs Archives at weru.org. Thank you, Amy Brown and Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, thank you, all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.